Hi, spookies. This is the Spooky Scully podcast. I'm Scully. I also go by Carly. And this episode is about the murder of Maria Monleon in the 1920s. episode is going to be as in-depth as I can make it. I feel like this woman's story should be heard because all I found on the case was old forgotten newspaper articles. Also, if I mispronounce any names, I sincerely apologize. I looked up the pronunciation on pronouncenames.com and I'm going to do my best to get my mouth to make these names sound like they do on the website. So anyway, let's start with how I came to find this case. It's kind of spooky, which made it perfect for this first episode. As most of my friends and family know, and you're probably the only ones listening to this podcast right now, so thank you! I'm pretty into the supernatural. Ghosts, demons, cryptids, weird, dark facts or history, you know I'm all about it. So when a friend who asked to remain anonymous was being plagued by nightly apparitions of a woman who only repeated the number 21, I went searching for what that could mean. And wow, was there a lot to find angel numbers, the symbolic meaning of numbers. But a case that happened in our hometown where we grew up stood out to me the most. And while I don't know if the case is connected to what my friend was experiencing, it definitely stuck with me. It was the murder of a woman that happened in the summer of 1921. On a street we spent a lot of time on during our summers as teenagers decades later. I had goosebumps. I'm fairly certain my goosebumps had goosebumps. I had never heard of this case before I stumbled across an image of an old weathered article that read, Chino woman dies in street after dispute, dated June 19, 1921. I dove straight into this case, <laughs> looking for as much information as I could find. And while I couldn't track down any case files, court documents, an official autopsy report, or much information about the Monleon's lives before this tragic event, I did find a few census records, travel documents, and of course, lots of old articles that held details on the case. So, who was Maria Monleon? Maria, also sometimes referred to as Marie, was born in 1885 and was about 36 years old when she died. She was about five feet tall, had black hair, dark eyes, I'm assuming they mean brown, and a good complexion? I'm gonna guess that means no rashes, scars, or acne. I'm not really sure. I couldn't find any pictures of her, but if her daughters looked anything like her, I imagine she was beautiful because they were beautiful. Maria was married to Ramon Monleon. They had four daughters, Candida, who was 13, Isabel, 11, Victoria, six, and Rosie, who was just three at the time of her mother's death. The family migrated to America from Spain. I'm not sure if this was before or after Victoria was born, because according to travel records, she was born in the States. Then at some point, Maria and her children went back to Spain, only to return again when Victoria was three. Then Rosie was born a few years later, and by the time of Maria's death, they were living in Chino, California. This is where Ramon owned an acre of land, 
a four-room house, and a Ford car. They also lived near the town's police station, which will be an important detail later. As for income, the family would rent out a room in their home, and it was noted that Ramon would often travel to a friend's in Kern County for work. But other than that, I have no idea what he did. I imagine it had to do with the agricultural or dairy industry, as the area in and around Chino specialized in fruit orchards, row crops, and dairy. But unfortunately, none of the articles specify what Ramon's work actually entailed. What they did mention was that he would send money home for his wife and four daughters, so Maria and the girls didn't seem to be neglected. As for Ramon and Maria's marriage, according to testimony from friends, their marriage appeared to be good. Ramon was a doting husband and father. The couple seemed happy up until his six-month-long work trip to Kern County. Ramon was said to be upset with how much attention their border of two years, Jose Lopez, was giving Maria and ordered her Remember, this is the 1920s. He ordered her to keep him from returning to their home. From what I read in the news articles, it seemed like Ramon was convinced his wife was having an affair, or maybe he was jealous. <laughs> Who knows? There was a letter admitted as evidence that Ramon had written to his friend, explaining how he wanted to catch them in the act by coming home from his work trip early, and that he needed his friend to help by lying about the length of time Ramon would be away for work. So it seems Ramon was pretty convinced Maria was cheating on him. Whether or not his suspicions were true, I can't tell you. It didn't look like he had proof. Luckily for Jose, there were distinguished people who vouched for him, stating that he would never do anything of the sort. And it seemed he was never charged with anything either, despite being arrested and detained along with Ramon. There was mention of charging him with a misdemeanor for adultery because, you know, in the 1920s, there were laws in some states against adultery but it would appear he was never charged, or at least it wasn't reported on if he was. Some articles mentioned that the Monleons were getting a divorce because Jose and Maria had clandestine relations, which is just fancy talk for saying they were secretly having an affair. They also mentioned that Maria stated to Ramon that she loved Jose more and wanted to marry him. If she had stated that, I wonder if it was something she said out of anger during one of their arguments? Sometimes people say hurtful things they don't mean when they're angry, you know? Whatever the case was, they were both upset when they met with an attorney to start the divorce process. But they couldn't agree on dividing their property, so they left planning on returning the next day to finalize the divorce. On their way home that afternoon, however, they ran into Jose, which sparked another fight between the couple. And when they arrived at their home, Ramon returned to the attorney's office alone to request that he sell his home and acre of land as soon as possible, for $2,000 in cash. For those of you wondering, today it would be almost $31,000. Also, that seems a little suspicious. Was he trying to sell it so she couldn't claim any of the property in the divorce? I mean, I'm sure he was angry, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was, but I don't know. What I do know from all these lovely newspaper articles is when he went back home again, he picked up where he left off fighting with Maria. Only this time, and trigger warning for domestic violence, he began viciously beating her. Maria reportedly ran screaming for help from the home as Ramon followed her, continuing to beat her in the front yard until a neighbor ran over and stopped him. By the way, the neighbors could hear all of the fighting and struggling going on in the Monleon house, which is why they interfered, because they were already aware of it by the time the assault moved outside. 
Once the neighbor had pulled Ramon away from Maria, she stood up and started to make her way towards the nearby police station for help from an officer. Unfortunately for her, her husband was watching from the front porch. So he went into the house, came out the back, and caught up to her, demanding she return to the house. When she refused, Ramon pulled out his revolver. They argued for a moment longer, and then he shot her in the face. Yes, you heard that right. He shot her in the face. Not once, but twice. There are reports that Ramon walked away and then walked back and shot her again as she was laying on the ground. This shot apparently missed. I'm not sure if that was a third shot or if it was misreported by the news, but officials claimed she had two bullet wounds. Oh, and did I mention he did all of this in broad daylight? In front of more neighbors who had come out by the time the second fight started, and his own daughters who had followed them outside during their parents' quarrel. Remember, the oldest was 13 and the youngest was three. I can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been for them. A neighbor testified during the trial that all of the girls were crying and one had asked her father why he killed their mother. That seriously broke my heart. After the shots were fired, Ramon returned to the house, put his revolver away, then came back out to his girls, giving them each a kiss on the head, saying he wasn't sure what was going to happen now and if he was ever going to see them again. Then he waited under a nearby tree for the authorities to arrive while watching Maria's body lying in the street. To say this was an absolute tragedy would be an understatement. These girls lost their mother, and now they weren't sure if they were ever going to see their father again. Fortunately, the girls were looked after by their community during the trial, but most of their relatives were back in Spain. I can't imagine how alone and scared they must have felt during their father's trial. He didn't just kill his wife and the mother of his children. He also put his daughters through a traumatic experience and months of uncertainty. All because of his rage and anger. He should have just left that gun in the house. Should have just kept his hands off of Maria. Like, come on. Ooh. Okay. Once Constable Tebo had arrived at the Monleon residence, Maria's body was taken away by the neighbors and the constable arrested Ramon. It was later reported by officials that Maria died of hemorrhaging from the gunshot wound in the head. One of the bullets passed through her brain and the other through the lower part of her head. It didn't specify more than that, but they did mention she died a few minutes after being brought to Dr. Lagar Reed's office. And the authorities worried that there might be a lynching, so they had Ramon moved to the San Bernardino County Jail for his protection. They also arrested Jose Lopez and held him for investigation since Ramon blamed him for causing him to murder his wife. Why, yes, sir. This person made you do it. Not your anger, your jealousy, your rage. This guy who may or may not have been sleeping with your wife. They later released Jose. I'm not sure exactly when, but he did attend the trial hearings later. So after an inquest was held with testimonies from witnesses and officials, they determined that they would go forward with the case and formally charge Ramon with the murder of his wife. Later at the preliminary hearing, they announced the charge was first-degree murder and Ramon would be held without bail awaiting his trial, which was set for September 6, 1921. However, later it was pushed back to September 20th because the court had a lot of cases to go through at the time. You know, criminals be cramming in the 20s. When the trial did begin, the district attorney, T.W. Duckworth, I will try my best not to quack too many duck puns. <laughs> he asked for the death penalty for Ramon, making this trial much more dire for him and probably scarier for his daughters. And despite trying not to tell the girls too many details about their mother's murder or father's trial, the defense, led by Ralph E. Swing, 
I swear I'm not making these names up. They plan to use the girls to garner sympathy for Ramon during the trial by arguing that he went temporarily insane at the thought that his wife would leave him and his daughters for another man. Yeah, they went with the temporary insanity plea. And they leaned in heavily to the alleged affair, painting Maria as a scandalous woman who would abandon her own children and run off with another man. Keep in mind, all they had was a letter from Ramon to his friend about his suspicions and plan to catch them. They had no proof other than that and Ramon's own accounts of their arguments. Their other option was the unwritten law. If you don't know what that was, don't worry, I didn't either, so I looked it up. What I found on Cambridge.org was that killing a rival who had sex with a wife or dishonored a mother or sister was basically a crime without punishment. And the unwritten law came in a number of versions. I'm assuming they were going to use it for Ramon killing his wife because she was unfaithful, but they must have felt they couldn't prove her affair in court, so they tossed out that idea. That, or they worried the unwritten law wouldn't be as effective as a temporary insanity plea. Both of which are gross tactics, and I for one am glad they aren't as effective today as they once were. However, there are still rare cases where uh, that plea wins out. Disgusting and gross. So, the first day of the trial. The court had a hard time picking jurors. Newspapers reported the first day ended without a sworn-in jury. So they left with hopes to swear one in before noon the next day. To which I say, wowie. But thankfully, they did. The opening statements and testimonies didn't start until day two of the trial, after they had sworn in their jury. Ramon, of course, pleaded not guilty, claiming insanity at the time of the murder, and the first witnesses were called. Neighbors Mr. and Mrs. Shogai, who testified that Ramon seemed crazed during his quarrel with his wife, saying that his face was distorted and eyes bulged out, making me think of the demon face emoji. You know, the little red one. Oh wait, there's two red ones. I guess I'll have to post it up. <laughs> You'll see what I mean, I promise. Just look on the social medias. <laughs> I'll post it on the Instagram. By the third day of the trial, the Monleon girls were in the courtroom, one of which sat at the defendant's table with her father. The defense definitely used the girls as a sympathy card and to show how much Ramon loved his daughters, which I have no doubt he did, but maybe he shouldn't have put them through all that by shooting their mother twice in the face. Just saying. <laughs> No matter what you and your spouse are going through, violence is not the answer. Do what you need to do to calm down, my guy, but don't harm people or murderize them. <sighs> anyway, the trial went on like that, with testimonies from neighbors who witnessed the beating and then the murder of Maria, officials who responded to the crime and who determined the cause of death, friends who testified on behalf of the defense, who spoke highly of Ramon and how much of a doting father and husband he was. And then the time came for Ramon to take the stand. It's said that he testified that he only remembered grabbing his wife's arm at their back gate and then nothing else. He didn't remember the last argument or shooting her twice. Then in another heartfelt testimony, the two oldest girls, Candida and Isabel, stood next to their father. They recounted the events of their mother's murder and testified that Jose Lopez had come to the house when their father was away for work. That's all that was really mentioned. I'm not sure if that actually proves she was having an affair or if Jose was just a friend, but I guess I could see why someone might think there was something going on there. 
it does seem a little suspicious having a male friend over when your husband's away. Especially during the uh, relatively still prim and proper time period of the 1920s. I know it was the jazz era. Still, people were very, very prim and proper when it came to marriages. That's why there were adultery laws that they rarely ever used. The trial went on for several days. The defense claiming that their client was so upset he temporarily lost his mind and shot his wife. The prosecution arguing that the defense's facts were irrelevant. And the fact of the matter was he shot and killed his wife and that's what they were trying him for. All the while, Ramon was more interested in being with his daughters as he sat with them in court, doting on them. It seemed like he didn't care if he was on trial for murder at that point. If he was found guilty, he'd be put to death. So he was probably trying to soak up as much time with his girls as he could. Well, get ready for it. He'd get plenty of more time with his girls than their mother would because the jury came back with a not guilty verdict after five or eight hours of deliberation. It depends on what paper you're reading. It varies. But it was apparently nine for acquittal and three for conviction. So there were at least a few jurors who thought he should be convicted. After the verdict was read, Ramon was reported saying, Thank God, no, I can take care of my babies. With a lot of tears running down his face, he was a very, very emotional at that time. Just try to picture that, okay? <laughs> I hope I did it justice. Unlike the justice that wasn't served here. Anyway, he also said to the court that he was happy to be able to return to his daughters, but he was dead in here and placed his hand over his heart. Which I think he was suggesting that he was heartbroken. But Ramon, honey... You could have just been heartbroken and not a murderer as well. You should have just gone through the divorce and moved on, dude. It would have saved him a lot of money. In the end, the trial and funeral expenses would cost him all of his property. Ramon had to sell everything to pay it off, which resulted in the family moving away from Chino. And that was probably a good idea anyway. As for Jose Lopez, well, the Redlands Daily Facts put it so elegantly. He went out, walked down the stairs, and vanished into the street. And vanish he did. I couldn't find any articles or documents about him after the trial. There was a public debate over the legitimacy of a letter that criticized the trial and the jury's verdict. I'll give you a brief overview of it. Supposedly, a wife of a lawyer attended the trial hearings and wrote a letter to, it seems, a few newspapers about her experience and thoughts on the trial. She claimed to be the only woman in attendance, adding that it was in the best interest of women's rights that more ladies should have attended, and a shame that they didn't. She went on to judge the members of the jury who acquitted Ramon, despite swearing that they did not believe a husband had the right to kill his wife if she was unfaithful to him before the trial began. She also pointed out the lack of evidence to prove the affair between Maria and Jose, reminding folks that they were never caught in an uncompromising position. She mentioned that Jose would pay Maria to cook meals for him, providing the family with a little extra income. All the while, putting the defense and Ramon on blast, pointing out that his defense was based on his word, that Maria said this and Maria said that. There was no one else to collaborate that she said any of it. She concludes that if the tactics in this trial continue to stand, then no wife is safe from the effects of rumors and murder. And the letter isn't wrong. It hit a lot of good points. Not all points were great, but most were right on the money. It was refreshing to see that at least someone during the trial saw it for what it was. Undeniable proof of a husband getting away with murdering his wife. A murder that had several witnesses as well. Remember, all of the neighbors and the daughters were watching when he shot Maria in the face. 
This letter, of course, didn't go unnoticed by Ramon's defense attorney, Swing, who sent his own reply to the newspapers, claiming that the letter was surely written by a man. That man being a lawyer employed by Jose to slander the jury and Ramon. He claimed that there were many American women at the trial and they all applauded the verdict along with everyone else. He refused to argue the facts of the case, going on about how Jose was a homewrecker and that during the trial, Jose's attorney was consulting and advising the district attorney who prosecuted the case. And that this attorney had the letter of a wife prepared the second the trial was over to cause more damage to the Monleon family. Swing did cover his ass in response, though, saying that the newspapers that published the letter are respectable and were merely fooled by the shameless attempt to slander the jury in a man's good name. And covering his ass some more because it must have been oh so large. A whole person-sized ass, perhaps? In case you're not getting what I'm hinting at, I'm calling Swing an ass. He goes on a bit about how he doesn't condone murder, but he understands that, and these are his words. <clears throat> Conditions do arise that temporarily dethrone a man of reason to such an extent that he does not realize the nature or quality of the act he is committing. To summarize, he's defending his stance on the temporary insanity plea. Yuck. <laughs> this man was gross. Swing goes back to praising Ramon, going on about how great of a husband and father he was, how great the jury was, how happy everyone except the prosecution and Jose's party were with the verdict. Then goes on a rant about how Jose should be brought to justice for what he did to the Monleon family. I'm sorry, Swing. Who was it that pulled the trigger and killed Maria? Oh, Ramon? Okay, that's what I thought. The bulletin from Pomona mentioned that the charges were discussed but dropped because there was no evidence to convict Jose. Let me just repeat that one bit. No evidence. There was no evidence to back up Ramon's claims of an affair, so they didn't bother trying Jose. Yet Ramon was acquitted of murder based on his claims that had no evidence. You see why this case stuck with me for years? My goodness. While the outcome of this case was pretty shocking, it wasn't the only case in that time period with a similar outcome. Men could still get away with a lot when it came to women, especially their wives and daughters. Sadly, Maria wasn't the only woman whose murderer went free during the early 1900s. And while I'm glad her daughters didn't lose both their parents and weren't split up or sent to Spain to live with relatives they hardly knew, I'm still upset that there was no justice served for Maria's murder. Instead, they smeared her name and painted her as a wicked woman who would abandon her children. When there didn't seem to be much proof other than maybe one jealous husband's account and the kids saying Jose came over once when their dad was away, we may never know what the real story was. And sadly, there's no one left who might be able to shed some light onto who Maria really was before her death. As for the rest of the Monleon family, Ramon later remarried and went on to watch his daughters grow up, get married, and have children of their own up until his death at the age of 88. These were all things his first wife should have been able to do, regardless of whether or not she had an affair. And while I don't condone cheating, and I understand firsthand what kind of pain being cheated on can bring you, that doesn't give anyone the right to end another person's life, and no one deserves to die because of it either. The Monleon case has haunted me for years, so much so that I actually paid my respects to Maria in person. It made this case feel less like a story and more real, because cases like hers are real, these are real people we talk, read, or hear about in the true crime world. 
Maria was a real person whose life was cut short. But this is how I found out who was buried next to her. Ramon. Yeah. Your reaction was probably about the same as mine when my friend pointed it out to me. I think the phrase, what the fuck, was uttered once or twice. I know it might be common practice to be buried with your first spouse, and it wasn't until recently when people would be laid to rest next to their second or third spouse. But wow. I can't tell you why the family buried Ramon next to his first wife. It could have been the girls were so young, they may have forgotten the details of their mother's death, or that it was never talked about after the trial. Maybe they couldn't afford to bury him elsewhere. Or the plot had been bought when they buried Maria. It could even be all of those things. It could be a number of reasons. <laughs> I don't know. And while I can't say how Maria would feel about being buried next to her murderer, I can't tell you how I would feel if that were me. I would not be at peace. I would be an angry, grumpy spirit. And I'm telling my family this now so y'all better listen closely. If I end up dying at the hands of someone and they end up buried next to me later, you bet your booties I'm gonna haunt your butts until the end of time. Or until one of us gets moved. I'm serious, y'all gonna be catching these ghosty hands, okay? Ugh. So yeah, seeing Ramon's grave next to Maria's was another reason I wanted to share this case. Because it was unsettling to find. But this, my dear listeners, is where I will leave you for the murder of Maria Monleon. As for the next episode, it'll be spooky. I want to mix it up so this podcast doesn't feel so heavy. Anyway, until next time, I hope you keep listening, spooky people, and stay safe out there. <laughs>